Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. I'm your host as always, Dina Sargent, and today we're going to talk about a topic and hopefully give awareness to it. Um, Now, domestic violence is a topic we honestly don't hear enough about, especially when it comes to awareness. Uh, So here to help me today and sort of guide us through understanding a little bit more about it, as well as answering some deep insight questions. Uh, Today we have Christine Murray. How are you going today? Great, Dina. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's uh, it's it's pretty warm this morning, so I'm enjoying the heat. Oh, that's right. It's summer there. It's winter here <laughs> in North Hopefully Carolina. Opposite sides so. of the world. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm a little jealous. <laughs> it's okay. We'll send it over to you soon. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um. So, you've been. How long have you been working as a licensed marriage and family therapist now? Um, Well, I graduated with my master's degree in 2002 and my doctoral degree in 2004. So I guess it's been about 20 years that I've been uh, working in this field now. Wow. Um, So what got you into sort of studying a bit more and learning more about counseling and trying to help families and uh, a lot of people in your area? Sure. Um, So I was really interested in um, going into the field of marriage and family therapy and counseling. Actually, I made that decision back when I was in high school, um, just having gone through some different experiences in my family. And it just really piqued my curiosity about how to help relationships and families be as healthy and strong as they can be. Um, So I was interested in studying about sociology and psychology in my college years, um, and then went straight on to graduate school to learn more. Wow, that's that's a really interesting, it's a really amazing journey to find a positive in life experiences. Exactly. That's right. Yes. And uh, definitely even having uh, the professional training doesn't necessarily guarantee that relationship and family life will be easy even after that. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. It's uh, it's very different in professional and personal life. So, yes. Exactly. Yep. So before we get started on the topic, we love to start with a little icebreaker between um, you and the audience, just to know a little bit more about you before we get started. Sure, so sounds just, great. <laughs> so it's just going to be a little bit of a, so whenever I say these different topics, just say the first thing that sort of comes to your mind. Okay. Okay. So the first one is your favorite book. 
Um, well, unfortunately, these days I don't have a whole lot of time for reading. So most of my book reading these days is just a couple pages at a time over um, breakfast. Um, but lately I've been reading a lot of books about leadership and personal development. And I would say my all-time favorite or one of my all-time favorites is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Well, that sounds like a very interesting book. Mm-hmm. It does not sound like a light read at all. So no, it seems like not, a really good book. It's very <laughs> inspirational and uplifting and has a lot of practical information in it. Oh, that's amazing. Um, how about your favorite movie? Sure. So uh, this is a tricky one for me because I do not watch a whole lot of movies. And in fact, um, my kind of, I would say my all-time favorite movie has always been Forrest Gump. And of course, that's a pretty old movie by now. So that should show you how long it's been since I've had time to watch too many full-length movies. But um, that's always a classic. I'm always happy to rewatch it. Um, and if start, and my kids enjoy it now too, which is really fun. Yeah, I I never got into it when I was younger, I'll admit. But as I got older, I found it a little bit more, um, little bit more interesting to watch. So I can definitely agree with that. Yeah, definitely has good staying power over time. Yes, exactly. How about your favorite podcast? Sure. So actually, podcasts I do listen to a lot, like all the time. I love it. I can listen in the car. I can listen when I'm out walking or running. Um, so I would say one of my favorites lately has been called 10% Happier. Um, and it's kind of about meditation and ways that that can help in your relationships and in your mental health and all the different areas of your life. Well, that sounds, that sounds like a very interesting podcast. It sounds like a really mm -hmm. nice listen. Yeah, it definitely is. You should check it out. I definitely will. I'm adding that to my list. <laughs> <laughs> so how about your famous role model? Sure. So I would say most of my role models are probably more in the category of not being famous. In fact, um, I don't really have too many uh, uh, famous role models. I would say most of my role models are more in the category of close friends, families, members and colleagues. So um, not exactly famous to the whole world, but I guess that that would make them famous to me. Okay. See, that's, that's a really good answer. I love, I love that answer so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's true. How about, yeah, it's always true. I always like mm -hmm. the idea of having family members and friends as role models rather than famous people. Yeah. How about a favorite course that you've completed? Well, as I just said, it's been quite a few years since I have been in uh, graduate school or since I finished my uh, formal education. Um, of course, I've done a lot of different professional development things over the years and have to uh, to keep my licenses up. Um, but I would share that probably one of the courses that I took in graduate school that had the greatest impact on my career was the course that I took in family violence, uh, which of course is related to what we're talking about today. In fact, I would say probably um, had I not taken that course in graduate school, we may not even be here talking about this uh, subject today because that was really where um, I learned a lot about the impacts of family violence and domestic violence and just really started to develop my passion and especially around how do we prevent family violence and abuse. And then when we can't prevent it and people go through it, how do we help support them to have their immediate safety and then also the long-term recovery? 
See, one course, one course honestly can change the world and can change so much. <laughs> it's true. And I was a professor for many years before I moved into my current role, which is the director of a research center. Um, within the same university. And I always really, uh, I got to teach a family violence class actually for many years um, and always really tried to uh, inspire that same passion and really what we're talking about today, the awareness um, in the students that I worked with. Wow, that's incredible. It's, it's really leads into um, the whole interview question today. So it's a perfect answer. <laughs> so, um, We've brought you in to talk about a little bit more about family violence and domestic violence. Uh, to start off with, we all know that everyone has a very different and very broad definition of family and the whole idea behind it. Do you have a set definition of what family is to you? Well, I was really thinking a lot about that and reflecting on that leading up to today's program or my conversation with you. And as I was thinking about it, I think that the way that I would define family that really resonates with me is that family means the people that feel like home to you. Um, and so really, how do, we, how do we think about who feels like a family member in our life? And I think now we don't necessarily only define that by biological ties or things like marriage, um, more formal family ties, but also just those really close relationships that have that feeling of being home and connected. Oh, that's perfect. Um, so do you agree that today there is really no longer a universal sense of what family is? Well, I think if we think big picture with the idea that um, for virtually anybody, family can be the people that feel like home to you. Um, that could be somewhat of a relative definition, although, of course, we know that how family is defined can really vary a lot across cultures, um, across countries. I would imagine there's some different thoughts between where you are in Australia and here in the United States. Um, but I would definitely agree that there's a lot more expansive and inclusive view about what family means in today's world. I think that um, decades ago, it was maybe a much more narrow view of family being the sort of nuclear family. And now there's a lot more variation and you could have a chosen family. Um, but of course, I think um, I think that it's very it is very sort of culturally specific and influenced by a person's cultural values, maybe their religious viewpoints, um, and just the values and norms that they're brought up with. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And what do you think the position of a family is in today's society? Does it mean the same as it did sort of what you say 10, 20 years ago? I would still say for most people, they would still probably view the family as one of the greatest influences on their life. Of course, um, that could be a positive influence when you have a healthy, supportive, stable family environment, um, or even if it's not stable, one that kind of navigates through changes together. Um, and then for some people, of course, their definition of family or their experiences in family may not be um, a super positive influence. Maybe it's a very negative or even traumatic influence for them. 
Um, but still, there's an influence on your on whatever your experiences are in your family, whether that's a positive, negative, or probably for most of us, some mix of positive and negative. Um, but I do think that it has a lot of the same importance. But at the same time, I do think that um, there have been a lot of cultural shifts that really have changed the role of family and society, um, the freedom that people have maybe to form other kinds of relationships, um, such as really close friendships or other types of communities that um, may for some people really kind of take the place of their family um, connections that they've had too. So, um, but I think we personally, you know, my opinion, and I guess my opinion that's uh, impacted a lot by my professional training is that we should really avoid being too judgmental about uh, whether uh, how people define family is a positive or a negative for them. Um, because somebody may have, you know, sort of broken or disconnected or estranged relationships with their family. And it might be tempting to look on that as a bad thing, but maybe that was the healthiest thing for them to do would be to set some boundaries and disconnect from certain family members. Um, so I think that it's a, that's a really complicated issue, um, but I do think if you ask most people, um, their families and other really close relationships in their lives are one of the greatest factors that really Im impact the quality of their of their lives. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. I think especially when it comes to the understanding of what you define family is as a, like everyone defines it differently. Everyone can sort of define it as your blood relatives or even people that you turn into your family. And I think especially when it comes to the way that families are formed today, where it's like, it doesn't have to be, it can be one parent, it can be two parents, it can be grandparents, um, adoptive parents, all these other different kinds of situations that really do affect how you see your life in terms of whether it's a positive or negative thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there are, would be some people who might argue that there's been a breakdown in maybe a nuclear family and that that's been damaging. And, you know, I think that a case could be made for the trauma and the, the adversity that people go through when there are breakups in families like divorce. Um, but at the same time, I personally have really come to view that diversity and family structures as such a valuable thing, because the truth is that even when you try as hard as you can or um, you have all the tools, just like you said at the beginning of our conversation, real world is different than textbook. You know, if we could look at a textbook and say, OK, do these like five things and you're going to have a healthy relationship or a healthy family. Well, there's other people involved. We can't always do that. And so sometimes um, the healthiest thing is maybe for a child to be placed with another relative or for um, maybe a, a, a couple cannot be, have safety in their relationship. And the only way for people to be safe is, is through the end of that relationship. So um, of course, you know, we always, always, I think, hope that relationships can be restored and healed. And there's a lot of recognition now that sometimes that that um, isn't possible. Okay, so now that we've spoken about family in general, we're talking a little bit more about a specific area such as domestic violence and family, family violence. How do you define domestic violence in, in a very broad sense? 
So I would define domestic violence as a pattern of abusive behaviors that one person, or I guess in theory, it could be one or more people um, use to gain and maintain power and control over one or more victims. Um, so generally we're talking about two people in a romantic relationship, but of course, sometimes we might be talking about um, a family dynamic as well. So, um, so to break that definition down just a little bit. So first of all, it's really a pattern. Um, so this means that within an abusive relationship, there's an ongoing pattern or sort of a cycle of these abusive behaviors. Um, so we really have to look at that sort of broader context of what's going on in that. Let's talk about primarily couples here. So we really have to look at what's going on in that couple's relationship. Um, and it's important to note that point about power and control. Um, so we're not just looking at these behaviors in isolation, but the motive or intention behind them is really to gain or maintain that power and control over the other person. And so a lot of times when we think about domestic violence, we're going to think about someone hitting or slapping or punching. Um, so physical violence and of course, physical violence and abuse can be a part of an abusive relationship, but there are also many other layers or different types of abusive behaviors that an abuser might use. Um, so that might include emotional abuse, verbal abuse, psychological, financial, um, even things like uh, career or educational abuse that can happen. Um, and so there's a lot of layers to it. A relationship does not have to include physical violence to be able to be considered abusive. Um, most often when there is physical abuse, we also find that there's emotional or psychological abuse and other types of abuse that are present. Um, I'll just add a couple other points as well um, that the uh, domestic violence or intimate partner violence can happen between current partners. It also can happen after the relationship has ended um, and it can happen in all kinds of relationship statuses. So it's not just something that happens to married couples, for example, or living together. Um, there's a lot of talk more recently about dating violence um, that we can see in even teenage relationships, college students. Um, and also, of course, uh, domestic violence or intimate partner violence can happen uh, in heterosexual couples, but it can also happen in same sex couples or couples with any sort of gender identities. Um, so it's really about that pattern of abusive behaviors of related to the power and control dynamics that occur in the context of a current or former uh, intimate relationship. Yeah. Okay. So you were talking about, I mean, definitely with physical violence, you can definitely tell if someone is being abused in sort of ways, especially if it's physical, like you could see the bruises and things, situations like that. But emotional violence and emotional abuse is a very, very different thing. It's something that you don't always see. Is there, like we use a lot of talk, especially um, on social media nowadays when it comes to emotional blackmail and sort of the category of narcissistic sort of tendencies. Is that a sort of um, definition that you would use for emotional abuse as well? Personally, I would consider emotional abuse to be sort of an umbrella term that could describe a lot of different specific 
um, categories and types of emotionally abusive behavior. So one common one that people might think of would be verbal abuse. I think verbal and emotional abuse go really hand in hand. So verbal abuse is where the abuser is using their words and saying specific things to put down the other person and hurt them um, and hurt their feelings and, and cause them emotional damage. Um, but just like you said, we are hearing a lot more about terms like narcissistic abuse. Um, we hear a lot about things like manipulation. Gaslighting has become a really common word um, that people are using. It's sort of made its way from um, kind of an obscure term in the domestic violence arena to now it's something that is really being talked about more broadly, which I think is a great thing and reflects the um, I mean, it's not a great thing that more people are maybe recognizing that they're experiencing it, but it's a great thing that there's a lot more awareness of that as a particular type of emotional abuse. So I do think that emotional abuse can uh, often be much harder to detect. Um, of course, if somebody says, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're worthless, you know, that's really pretty easy to detect that that's an abusive, emotionally abusive dynamic that's going on. Um, but a lot of times uh, people who are abusive are very manipulative. Um, they're very good at sort of disguising their abusive behaviors in ways that aren't as, uh, as um, direct for people to identify. And that can make it much harder for uh, somebody who is facing emotional abuse to be able to label their experience appropriately. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what makes the behavior considered sort of an emotionally abusive relationship? Well, I think again here, you would be looking for the pattern um, over time. And so I think that's really important in the context of emotional abuse, especially um, probably even in pretty healthy relationships partners are going to have times where maybe they say or do something, you know, that is less than, you know, their ideal, you know, maybe they'll say something that's hurtful um, or do something that hurts feelings. The difference is in a healthy relationship, um, the person who does or says something hurtful takes accountability for what they're doing. They're sincere when they mean that they're going to work on it. They're going to work on changing their behaviors. Um, and they, they're remorseful about it and they, they're not, they're doing it maybe because they didn't have the skill or the ability to communicate in a healthy way, um, whatever they were feeling, their intense feelings in that moment. Now, again, here's where we really need to look at that power and control dynamic, um, to help set aside and help us set apart and identify when we're looking at an emotionally abusive dynamic. So this would be then you you would have a partner who is really trying to use that those emotionally abusive or those hurtful words or actions in a way to maintain some sort of power over their partner. So control, I think, is maybe often a better way to think about it. Um, so we can think about a partner that you know is controlled by them, so they don't have as much freedom in that relationship. And in reality, in healthy relationships. There's a sense of freedom, um, there's a sense of connection, but also independence. Um, and so I think that we have to look at that sort of broader pattern to really be able to tell when emotional abuse is going on. Mm -hmm. So when it, so for example, you're sort of talking about emotionally abusive, like the language is very, is very important, the language that's used. How do you know the difference between a fight that's sort of a bit immature and an actual emotionally abusive situation? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's a great question. And one, one important caution that I would have or that I would say is that um, if somebody is listening and either they themselves or someone that they care about um, has experienced something that they're wondering is a possible sign of abuse, um, to take that seriously. One of the dynamics of abusive relationships is minimizing or denying the extent of the abuse. So it's natural to, you know, an abuser would say, oh, I didn't mean it, you know, I'm really sorry, or I didn't mean it like that. Um, and so it's hard to tell looking at any kind of sliver of a couple's relationship. Um, by just looking at that isolated incident. So more so, I think you want to look at that sort of pattern and say, you know, do you feel free to ex express yourself, um, express your thoughts openly, your feelings openly? Do you feel safe in your relationship? Not just physically safe, but also emotionally safe. Um, do you feel like your partner is maybe trying to isolate you? That's another common dynamic of an abusive relationship. So. You know, I do think that, you know, we need to take seriously anytime we see a red flag in a relationship um, and not necessarily that any hurtful word is a sign that we have a full blown, you know, abusive uh, domestic violence situation in our hands. But I usually recommend because there are so many forces at play that would lead people to um, minimize the extent of the abuse to really take it seriously and uh, potentially seek help, to pay attention um, to the overall patterns in that relationship, um, to get a better sense of what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And I will say too, I guess there's also a severity issue. I mean, I think that, I, you know, it's hard to really put into words because any example, and it's very relative. So what I may view as a really hurtful word Dina, you may not view it as hurtful and vice versa. You you might hear you, you and I might experience the same thing, you know, in a very different way. But we all probably could also agree um, that there are different levels of um, potentially hurtful things that a partner could do or say to us. Um, so, you know, for example, um, for some some people like a criticism of maybe what they're wearing, not a big deal. For other people, that could be something because their partner knows that maybe they're self-conscious, they have body image concerns, you know, then they're picking on sort of that insecurity. So we really have to kind of look at what's the severity and maybe is it something that the partner's really, you know, kind of exploiting the trust or some vulnerability that's been shared in that relationship. I think it's really interesting, especially when it comes to like you jokingly, some people can j take it as a joke when they're saying, oh, you're stupid. But then some people really take that as a, okay, this is not a good person you want to be talking to. When yeah. it's like, it's not intended to be hurtful in any way. It's just their way of communicating a joke or saying something that's funny. How do you know that limit where it's like, okay, if that's that person's way of joking, is that sort of something that you should still take seriously? Well, I think that, you know, in our world, I think we're becoming much more aware of past trauma. And so um, it used to be only in certain fields you would hear about trauma-informed care. Now we're seeing um, many organizations and different professions really looking at trauma-informed care. And we can take a trauma-informed care lens into our relationships, into our friendships. And I think 
What that just means is being sensitive to different people's experiences and sensitivities they may have um, because of those experiences. So, you know, for example, if you have never in your life or if not you, Dino, but if somebody, you know, has never in their life been verbally abused, been put down, they've never experienced someone saying you're stupid or you're worthless and meaning it in an abusive way, well, you may have no problem accepting a joke like that and think it's silly and say it right back yourself. But if the person that is on the receiving end of that, let's say they do have a history of um, of abuse, maybe it's a former intimate relationship, romantic relationship, maybe it's childhood abuse, maybe they were bullied, um, they're going to have a different level of sensitivity to that too. And I just, and I don't think only people who have a history of trauma are sensitive to that too. I just think everybody's different in the extent to which they find things offensive. Um, it could be you're having a bad day and you're just not in the mood for that kind of joke. So, um, you know, I think that when we care about people, we want to learn about them, understand them so that we can avoid those triggers and show them that we love them and care for them in ways that are meaningful to them. Um, and so I would, I think that's a good way to think about that is sort of, you know, is that something that a per, if certainly if, if, if we're talking about somebody and they know that that's something that makes you feel unsafe or uncomfortable and they keep doing it, even if you have repeatedly told them it's not funny, that might be a relationship where you need to put some boundaries in place or even end that relationship um, because that person's not being very sensitive. And similarly, I guess you could say if you're a person who thinks that that's funny, um, you know, then I think, um, you know, maybe you need to choose your friends carefully and make sure you're kind of connecting with other people who have that shared sense of humor. So I think in any healthy relationship, communication can help navigate those differences between people. Um, but of course, when we're talking about an abusive relationship, it's generally not going to be a healthy relationship where there's a lot of good, positive communication a lot of the time. Yeah. Okay, so we, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier when you're sort of listing out the different types of abuse that takes place. I think one that really stood out to me was uh, financial abuse because I don't think I've ever actually heard that as a sign, as a type of abuse before. So mm -hmm. what exactly is financial abuse? Well, I think broadly financial abuse is really any any financial means of, again, exerting power and control over the partner. So I've heard a lot of different examples of this, of what this might look like. Um, so for example, it could be something as extreme as identity theft. And so in a relationship, your partner, they may be able to access some of your personal information. And I don't know what the parallel is in Australia, but in the United States, like maybe they can get your social security number and your birthday and your driver's license number and then use that information to open accounts. Um, so that's a pretty extreme form of it. Um, other times we hear, I've heard of people who um, force their partners to take out debt for them. Um, being financially dishonest in a relationship or financial betrayal could be considered part of that. Um, in close relationships where people have combined their finances, a lot of times it looks like financial control. Um, so where only one person can access the accounts, has any information, they may give their partner like a small allowance 
um, instead of giving them full access to the finances. Um, so those are just a few examples. Um, I've heard a lot of different types. It could be stealing. Um, this kind of uh, connects with like maybe career or, or employment abuse as well. But um, sometimes it's like the partner gets the paycheck and the abusive partner insists that they turn it over to them immediately. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that this can can look like. And of course, when somebody has limited financial resources, that can make it very difficult for them to um, be able to leave that relationship. So financial abuse um, is becoming much more widely recognized. And also, um, if somebody has experienced financial abuse, it can really add to the barriers that they face for leaving that abusive relationship because their financial resources might be limited. Okay. Um, so talking about the emotion abuse, how bad does emotional abuse influence a victim? And what are some sort of the implications of abusive partners to survivors or victims? Well, I think a common misconception that people might have is that emotional abuse might be easier to experience than physical abuse. And certainly physical abuse can be extremely hurtful, leave injuries, lasting physical health consequences. Um, but through one of the long-term um, work initiatives that I've worked on, it's called the See the Triumph Campaign. And we've done research with thousands of survivors of past abuse, um, mostly surveys, some interviews very early on. Um, we've developed a social media campaign called See the Triumph. Um, and so through that, we've collected stories from so many survivors. And one of the things that we've heard from many of them, and of course, everybody's experience is different, um, but we've heard from many of them that actually the emotional abuse often can be much more difficult or just as difficult to heal from um, than physical abuse. Um, and that often is even from people who've experienced both physical and emotional abuse. Um, so the impacts are really going to be different for every single victim and survivor. Um, but the reality is that emotional abuse can be very hurtful um, and have some significant effects. So that might look like mental health symptoms, um, possibly even PTSD. Definitely, it can take a toll on the victim or survivor's self-esteem. Um, and even they could have physical health effects from emotional abuse, um, such as if they're really facing chronic uh, stress, chronic emotional stress that could lead to physical symptoms uh, in their bodies. Mm -hmm. So when sort of talk about the victims, I mean, not always the case where the victim is the person that is facing the abuse. It could be the children that are also facing, facing it as well or sort of indirectly seeing what's going on. How do you sort of really talk with them in order to see, sort of help them heal and help them understand what they've gone through? Well, I think conversations like the one that we're having today are often um, a really po uh, powerful part of that. Oftentimes, there is a period where people don't necessarily recognize that they are in an abusive relationship. Um, and so over time, there's can be a growing awareness that, wow, this relationship was abusive. And then maybe looking back over time, they're noticing certain things or experiences that they had. Um, and so really, I think gaining insight. Now, you, you talked about children, so that's a little bit different. Um, but even with children, 
it can be helpful for them to have a place to talk through their experiences, to learn more about safe and unsafe relationships, um, and gain some insight into the experiences they've had, how they can affect uh, people. I definitely think connecting people with resources and supports like counseling, um, like support groups, like victim advocacy, sometimes like practical resources. Sometimes people need housing. Um, sometimes they might need career counseling. So um, for children, maybe they need the support from a school counselor or uh, assistance with their um, schoolwork if it's had an impact on their lives there. Um, so I think that first, just affirming that it wasn't their fault, um, that, you know, that they are not responsible for the abuse that they experience. Sometimes naming it can be really powerful to say that you have been abused. You are not alone, um, that this is a painful experience. And if you're hurting and you're upset about that experience, well, that makes perfect sense. This is a traumatic thing to go through. Um, so I think really providing that support, that emotional support, that tangible support, all of those are ways to really help people get on that pathway to healing. Mm -hmm. And what makes it really difficult to heal after an emotionally abusive sort of domestic situation? There are a lot of factors that can make it difficult to heal. Um, first of all, most people these days, I feel, most people I know, at least I will say, are very busy, you know, so um, just because you're healing from past abuse, really, does, sometimes you can kind of pause and, and focus only on your, your healing or your mental health. But for most people, when even when we are going through or we've gone through difficult times, we still have to go to work. We still have to take care of the kids. We still have to keep our houses clean and pay our bills, right? So trying to fit in healing in the midst of, for many of us, really busy lives can add to um, that challenge. Um, also, sometimes even if a relationship stops, the abuse does not stop. And that is something that often people don't realize um, because we think about, you know, well, the, re the relationship ended, so poof, you know, the abuse must have stopped automatically too. But in reality, a lot of times, especially if there's still some sort of connector between the partners, um, there's still ongoing abuse, maybe ongoing harassment that can happen. We see this a lot when we're talking about parents who share custody of the child. Um, but even when there aren't children present, you can see it through maybe using the court system as a tool for continuing to carry on abuse if they're married, for example. Um, so there's a lot of challenges. So trying to in that case, if the if there's still abuse or um, controlling behaviors that are going on, trying to heal from the past while also facing new incidents as you're moving forward is really complicated. Um, and then I think it's, it can be hard to find qualified, well-trained helpers, um, especially in the community of mental health professionals. More recently, there's been wider attention to this issue um, but my experience, and I, like I said, I was a, a professor in a counseling department for many years. Um, it's not standard practice for many therapists and counselors, if you would believe it, um, to have extensive training in working with um, victims and survivors of domestic violence. So finding the right 
therapist, especially in a day and age. I don't know how it is for you all in Australia right now, but at least here in my local community, wait lists to get in with therapists. So many people I think are struggling with mental health challenges. Um, it's hard to find a it's hard to find a therapist in general, let alone one who is specialized um, and who has the training, the competence, the knowledge to really understand the unique dynamics that someone's gone through. So there's a lot of barriers, um, but I think the what I would add on maybe a slightly more positive note is just to know that everybody's healing journey is really their own, and there's not a set timeline. Um, you do not have to, if you have been through abuse, you do not have to overcome it in a month, a week. You know, it sometimes for many people can be a lifelong journey that's full of some ups and downs and, you know, getting to a much more stable place, but still really working on your healing um, for a long time. And, and that's okay because we really want to look at, you know, progress. Am I moving forward? Am I healing a little bit, getting stronger? Um, day by day. It's not, there's no magic wand that says, okay, you're, one day you're just going to be totally over this and it's going to happen a week from now. Um, so I think if people can sort of understand that they're up against a lot, but um, the journey to healing is really worth it. And it's also very possible. So when you're talking about sort of the healing process, and we're talking a little bit about that, what are some of the, does it affect the victim's sort of understanding of relationships afterwards? And if so, how does it affect them? I think, again, here, everybody is going to be different in how it affects them and their perceptions of future relationships. Um, I do think that the idea of triggers is a very, is a very real one. That has also sort of become a bit of a buzzword, triggers. You know, even you'll hear kind of kids using that term today, like, oh, I got triggered by this. Um, but for survivors of the trauma of an abusive relationship, um, those triggers can be very real and um, sometimes, you know, don't necessarily know that you're experiencing one until it comes up. So, you know, it might be a certain way that a, a new partner might look at yours. You might start dating someone and then notice that if they don't call you or text you back after a certain period of time, that brings up an added level of anxiety. Um, I will say, I think a protective factor that can really help with this is if you have a lot of positive, supportive, caring, trusting relationships in your life, that can be a real buffer because once you realize that the abusive person was fully responsible for their abusive actions, that it's not your fault. You can see that, that that's, that's on that person, right? And there's a lot of other people um, potentially in, in your life that can be very supportive of you. Um, so I, I will share here, I don't know if you know this, I've spoken publicly about this before, but I myself am a survivor. Um, in addition to all my work in this area, I'm personally a survivor of an abusive relationship. And this is something that I personally feel grateful for. I guess maybe it's a certain level of privilege because I know that not everybody you know, has that. But even though I've been through that experience of an abusive relationship, I've always felt very hopeful and positive about relationships with other people um, because I have, like I mentioned earlier, when you asked me about my role models, I have a lot of really close relationships with friends, family members, 
um, work colleagues um, that help me to know that there are good people and good relationships out there. And that's really helpful. And, and I will say, you know, a, a word because to those who maybe aren't so fortunate to have that, to just know that that it's possible um, that if you haven't found that sort of community yet to keep looking for it, um, there are support groups, there are online communities that um, that we've seen through our See the Triumph community, but there's, there's some that are even much more active um, and much more sort of survivor, you know, uh, support group driven, um, that you can have healthy relationships and that there are good, positive people out there. Um, but if you have ish difficulty trusting, you know, as sometimes I have difficulty tr trusting people, you know, or maybe it takes a little bit longer. I don't know if that's because I have an experience of an abusive relationship myself or not. Um, but, you know, that's okay. That's a normal expected reaction to going through um, a major violation of trust and safety in your relationship. And you can work through it. You can build your, uh, your skills, your communication skills. You can look for different qualities and people to help you build those healthy relationships. Oh, that sounds that sounds uh, very interesting. So, looking into it a little bit more, what are some of the? I think you've mentioned this a little bit earlier, but what are some of the other misconceptions of abuse in a domestic situation? Sure. Well, I did mention the one earlier uh, that sometimes people think that just because the relationship ends, the abuse also ends. So we've already kind of touched on that one. Um, I think a couple others that really come to mind when I think about this. First of all, I would say the common one is sort of that question of why didn't you leave or why did you stay? And I think that underlies a common misconception that a victim is choosing to stay. Maybe they want to be abused. Um, you know, maybe they're just choosing to be in that relationship. They don't mind the abuse. The reality is oftentimes there are many, many factors that drive a reason why someone might choose, might choose or need to stay in an abusive relationship for a period of time. First of all, they may not feel safe. They may have been threatened by their partner that if they leave that relationship, um, that they will be seriously hurt, um, that they are, they'll destroy their reputation. They'll never see their kids again. Um, and so that might be a factor there. So the fear, or they may not have the financial resources, just like we talked about earlier with financial abuse. Um, so the reality is oftentimes we turn our focus so much on why is a victim staying in this relationship when really we should be asking the other question of why is that abusive partner continuing to act in this abusive way toward that partner? So that's really an important lens to look at. Um, and probably the other one that I will mention that really stands out to me is just, we often have misconceptions that there's certain types of people um, that are survivors or that are even abusers. We think that they maybe come from a certain uh, socioeconomic status or certain professions that they can come in or certain neighborhoods. Um, but the truth is that violence and abuse, it really crosses all demographic um, categories, all different demographic backgrounds. Um, we really can't say that it's limited only to certain people. And in fact, I think that stereotype sometimes makes it harder for people to recognize if they are experiencing abuse or if someone they care about is experiencing abuse, because you might think, 
oh, that kind of person would never face that, you know, or, or um, I, I've heard from people who maybe come from, say, a higher educational level who might say, well, I couldn't go to a domestic violence shelter. That's not for people like me. You know, but the truth is that those are resources that are really available for everybody. And we need to have that broader acceptance that um, being highly educated, being wealthy, being from different sort of privileged backgrounds or a higher income neighborhood is not a guarantee that a person will be immune from abuse. And in fact, it happens across the spectrum. And um, we need to be able to recognize and support people from any backgrounds when they're experiencing abuse. I think that's probably one of the most interesting misconceptions because it's really true how likely it is. Like, for example, you see someone who's really um, well-dressed and things like that, but you don't see how if they're being abused or not. And you don't they don't see it themselves as being worth being able to go into those shelters because it's like for people who are underprivileged, not above privilege. So it's very it's a very interesting kind of um dynamic and misconception that sort of goes around very easily. And there's a lot of stigma and shame for people who have experienced abusive relationships. In fact, the See the Triumph campaign that I mentioned earlier, actually the main thing that we've been working on with that is understanding the stigma that survivors of abuse face, whether that's while they're in the relationship or afterward. And so there's so many layers of stigma and those different sort of misconceptions and identities. And they can be things that people internalize. Um, they can hear from people like, oh, it must not have been that bad. You know, well, look at the look at the home that he provided for you or the car that he, ha he had you driving around in, right? It's hard to, you know, for many people, it's hard to reconcile one image of a person and one image of a person's life with um, this other possible image of a person. But the reality is abuse is abuse, whether it is in any particular background or another, it can be just as hurtful. Um, and everybody uh, has a right to happy, healthy, and safe relationships. We say in another initiative that I've worked on, um, the Healthy Relationships Initiative, um, and has, has a right to heal and has a right to have support um, and recover from those experiences as well. So when talking about that, sort of one of the stigmas that sort of really I'm trying to understand is how much of an influence the cultural sort of aspect has on the understanding, the stereotype on domestic abuse. Because you don't talk about it in some cultures. It's not something that you even, even broach the topic of. Yeah, definitely. I think um, we, we've heard so much about this through our research and how that looks in different cultures. It can be different religious groups, um, different neighborhood pressures. Um, we heard from survivors in our studies who said they were part of a, of a church. They went to the pastor and the pastor just said, well, you're not praying hard enough, right? And how, how damaging that can be to just say, well, just, just pray harder, right? When somebody really is in an unsafe situation and by not connecting them with resources, um, they're potentially even more at risk. And you're absolutely right. Different cultural groups um, talk about it more or less. I think that we have seen my personal observation now that I've been in, the, in this field and doing this work for 
about two decades now, um, is I think there's been radical shifts in, in the extent to which people talk about domestic violence, sexual assault, um, trauma. I can think back to early in my career, people just didn't talk about it. The only time the local media or media just in general, even the national media here would talk about it would be there'd be some big major, uh, most often a homicide. Um, and they would talk about it for a couple of days and then it would really go back under cover. People wouldn't talk about it until the next one. And I um, personally, I, I have no idea how this would translate into um, Australia, but my experience in uh, working in this field and doing a lot around community awareness of domestic violence was this, and this is just, you know, Christine Murray's personal opinion here, but um, I noticed a shift after in, I believe it was 2014, when the National Football League player Ray Rice, there was the domestic violence incident um, video that was just everywhere. And it then started to lead to more questions with the NFL. Um, and there was just so much outrage about that because people actually saw it. And then soon after that, I believe there was a lot of um, coverage about college students, sexual assault. Um, there were other things, other factors that I'm probably not remembering. I know then, you know, we saw the Me Too movement here. So what you've really seen is the topic of domestic violence, um, abuse, like, like I mentioned earlier, who was talking about gaslighting? you know, 15, 20 years ago, nobody would have known what that is. Now you can't like go through uh, social media for, you know, a week without seeing some article or like, are you being gas gaslighted at work? Or what is gaslighting? How to understand this form of abuse? So it's just a radical shift. You've had so many more celebrities coming forward, talking about their experiences. So I do think that at least, you know, this is again, my observation. Um, and I think, you know, my observation is just one person's observation, but I've just seen it in terms of the number of news interviews that I get asked to do, the number of speaking engagements, when those happen, are they just during October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, or are we talking about it in January just because you and your uh, podcast recognize that this is an important topic. And so we need to talk about it. And it doesn't matter that it's not Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I view that as uh, major progress. Still a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, but I think that the, the it's been a really changed uh, conversation and way that it's talked about. I, I definitely agree with that. I think it's like from, from just seeing it on social media, like you see, like you said, gaslighting and all these terminologies that you wouldn't even hear about even growing up. That's not something that you even mentioned. And now you're just like staring at everyone being like, are you, are you like, are you gaslighting me right now? Like you're yeah. able to call them out straight away because you know what it means. Exactly. Yeah. How much more are people recognizing, say, toxic relationships, toxic workplaces? Um, and sometimes that is the same thing as abusive and sometimes it's not. But um, I think it's a great progress. Now we have a long, long way to go. COVID probably everywhere, you know, but COVID, I think really the isolation um, that was involved in that, the stress that was on families, um, you know, in terms of, I think the actual statistics I've seen sort of uh, mixed 
mixed uh, information as to whether it actually increased it or if it just made it more likely. But, you know, there's still way too much violence and abuse that's happening. And, you know, it's just there's still so much work to be done. But I do think that there's a lot of progress in the general collective awareness. Yeah, I agree. There's still a lot of, there's still a lot, especially when it comes to the support. I think there's still a lot that can be done and that should be done. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it's progress and it'll take, it won't take straight away to take place. But yeah, at least we're talking about it now. So it's important. Yeah, definitely. So we're going into the practice and habit sort of part of the show. Um, So what is your practice to cope with or you recommend to cope with domestic violence in a family and sort of reduce the risk? Well, I have a couple of different thoughts on this. I think that, I think because most often what what I have experienced is not necessarily people themselves coming to me and saying, I'm, an ex- I'm experiencing an abusive relationship. That does happen. But what happens more often than not, and I think for a sort of a general population uh, podcast like this one, conversation like this one. I think it's really helpful to talk about how you can help and support a friend or a family member or a coworker, any loved one that you know that might be experiencing abuse. And what are some practices that you can use in that way? That is much more common if I'm out doing a speaking engagement or, you know, just talking to people about what I do much less common for them to say, oh, I'm being abused or I've been abused. But a lot of times what I hear is, well, my niece or my neighbor, you know, a good friend of mine. Um, So so I'd like to really focus on that there, if if that's okay. So um, through our See the Triumph campaign, we have focused a lot. In fact, we have a whole um, collection on our website that all of our resources are totally uh, free to download. Um, So it's seethetriumph.org. And if you go to the collections section and then scroll down, we have a whole uh, collection on how to help a friend. We've done so much on this because um, helping to equip the community, I think, is a really important practice. Um, So we have especially honed in on five uh, practices, we could say, uh, using the terminology here today, five things you can do, five ways that you can help a loved one who is being abused uh, by an intimate partner or who has been abused. The first and most important thing I think is just a starting point is to be really intentional about not being judgmental. So being supportive, being validating, respecting their decisions, being really careful about how you're talking to them. Don't say, well, why are you still with that person, right? Say, you know, well, tell me about what the relationship has been like for you or how have you been feeling about that relationship? So just be really, really careful. Be sensitive to the fact that if they're talking about it with you or if you're raising your concern to them, they're probably going to feel judged or somewhat ashamed of their experiences for all the reasons we've talked about. So first of all is not judging them. Um, Second, ask them what kind of help that they would like for you to offer to them. So you might think, well, I'm going to help you pay for a lawyer so you can get a divorce. That might be something that might be helpful for them now or in the future. They might not even be ready to think about that yet. Um, They may have no interest in ending the relationship just yet, or they just might not be ready. So just ask them, say, what can I do to help you? Is there anything I can do to help you? I'll be thinking of you. Is there anything more I can do besides just sending good energy your way? 
you could offer, you know, here's the, here's the way I could help you. I could, I'd be happy to watch your kids for you if that would be helpful if you want to go talk to a counselor. So asking them what kind of help. Um, so number three is knowing your own limits. So most likely, um, most people are not trained extensively to support someone who's experienced domestic violence. So know where you your sort of knowledge and your skills and and where it might be helpful to refer them to the community. So, so to a resource in the community. So that might look like helping them to connect with the local domestic violence agency or helping them to find a counselor that might be helpful for them. Um, fourth, really thinking about offering practical support to help promote their safety. So that could be like a code word, um, especially in a case of physical violence. Say, if you call me and say, we need to have spaghetti for dinner tonight, you know, then that means like, I need help. Can you call the police, for example? So really practical support, especially when there's heightened safety risk. And then fifth, I think the, the fifth thing that anybody can do to help somebody who's experiencing abuse um, would be to just be as affirming as possible, reminding them you deserve to be safe. You deserve a healthy, safe relationship. You deserve to be treated in positive ways. And oftentimes I think it's frustrating when somebody we care about is experiencing an abusive relationship. Um, but sometimes we need to work through our own frustration so that we can really be there for that loved one. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very, um, like, I love the process and I love how it's very, it's very much set in the different ways. It's very, I'm amazed at how common it is to sort of not be like, it's the family member that's sort of the one reaching out and saying that, okay, this person is, how do I help? Is this person is facing abuse. How do I help them? It's why is that such a common, common part of sort of the getting the help? It's not like the person that's facing the abuse that's able to sort of just say, how do I handle this? I would speculate that it's much easier to identify those unhealthy or even unsafe patterns from the outside of a abusive relationship than it is from the inside. Um, and even if you're on the inside of that relationship, you may recognize it, but you probably have much more complex feelings toward that abuser. So you may recognize this person is hurting me or I don't feel safe with my partner, but there's a part of me that loves them or, you know, I want to keep the relationship together for the children. So what am I supposed to do? Whereas someone on the outside, they're sort of looking at it. They don't have that same level of feelings potentially, you know, toward, toward the abusive person. Um, also, I think what can happen is um, sometimes it's maybe not direct abuse, but sometimes a loved one might notice signs of possible abuse, um, frustration. Uh, they might be frequently canceling plans because uh, isolation is a frequent abuse tactic. So partners, uh, abusive partners often try to isolate and keep their victim, sur the survivor, away from their friends and family members. So sometimes that can send up red flags for a friend or a family member to the point where then they're sort of recognizing what's going on or they're starting to wonder if, if their loved one is okay. Um, and so I think that it's, uh, I think... Sometimes uh, when I've been asked about that, um, 
over the years. A lot of times people are really, by the time they reach out, even just to me, even if it's just like as a friend or a colleague or, you know, a neighbor, um, they're often just really, really frustrated because they don't know what to do. They're scared um, for the safety. They want to help, but they don't know how to help. They might be afraid of their own safety. You know, if I intervene here, is the is this abusive person going to come after me or might that increase the risk for um, for the for the for their loved ones? So I do think there's often just a recognition of how dangerous the situation can be, how complicated and people just don't know you know, what to do. And uh, a lot of times I like to remind people that, you know, often, even if you're a loved one of someone who's experiencing an abusive relationship, you can call the hotlines. You know, you can call your local domestic violence agency and ask for information, ask for um, support, ask for guidance on, you know, if my loved one is really in danger, where can they go to help develop a safety plan, let's say. Okay. Um, so, Going on, we've got a, quite a bit of um, audience questions that have been sent to us, especially on this topic. Um, so the first one is, how do you recover from an emotionally abusive relationship? Are there certain steps that you should first go follow? Well, I don't think the recovery process is a neat like five-step process. But I do think that there are some common um, strategies that a survivor can use to uh, it, along that way. So um, first, we've talked about this a lot already, but I think seeking the support of a trained counselor or therapist, a support group, a domestic violence agency or advocate can be so helpful um, because that recovery process can be a long and difficult one. So certainly reaching out for the help that you need. Um, we also talked earlier, but I'll restate here, um, seeking out information. Um, so seeking out information and educational resources to learn about the dynamics of abuse. There's lots of great, credible resources online. There's a lot of books, other resources that you can find that you can use to help reflect on your own experiences, help educate yourself about the dynamics of abuse, as well as about the recovery process. Um, I think we use the term self-care so freely um, these days, but I think that really doubling down on your self-care um, during that recovery process, whatever that looks like for you. Um, so some people, you know, that means like really sleeping in and just taking some days to like lay on the couch and watch TV. Other people, it's getting outside and taking a hike. Um, some people love journaling, yoga, exercise, you know, the whole spectrum of different ways that you can care for yourself, make yourself and your healing a priority. And I think that would be, there's a lot more that I could say on this, but uh, for the interest of time, I'll kind of go to that as sort of like the last point on the response to this question is just to really think about how do I prioritize my healing and what is that going to look like for me? So how do I make time for it in my busy life? I might be working full time, taking care of kids, the household, the bills, all the things we mentioned earlier, where I may not be able to take three weeks off and go, you know, heal on some island that, you know, is remote and tropical, uh, which would be great for healing. But, you know, the reality is maybe I have five minutes in my day where I can sit down with my journal um, and that's that's what I can do on a regular basis. So how can I 
make my healing a priority and just take that next step every day. Okay. So the next question is, as an adult, I now come to realize that my the relationship between my parents were pretty much emotionally abusive as a child. Do I now bring it up to them in order for me to sort of understand it a little bit more or should I just leave it? I would think with a question like that, I think that is not a question that anyone on a podcast should attempt to give a quick answer to. So um, my suggestion for anybody who is dealing with um, that kind of situation or any variation on it, um, first of all, I just want to sort of validate how difficult and painful uh, that experience must have been for the person who went through that. Um, and and know that if that is something that is causing you a lot of distress today, that that makes perfect sense. Natural reaction to, um, you know, a potentially really difficult, even potentially traumatic experience. So uh, give yourself that time to practice that self-compassion um, and just be, you know, validate any feelings that you're experiencing in that situation. And then in terms of kind of the specifics um, of how to handle or navigate a situation like that, I think the best way to do that is possibly professional counseling, uh, like a counselor or a therapist. But I think sometimes we can we can also get that support as well, or even sometimes instead through if you have really close relationships with people, um, especially who may know more about the dynamics of how addressing it, um, you know, would potentially play out in, in your relationship. I think it's helpful to think those types of decisions through with somebody. Um, but I will add to, and this is common. Um, so in this particular case, we're talking about somebody who witnessed the, what they're saying, the emotional abuse that they witnessed between their parents. Um, but sometimes this is the same thing that people say, well, should I, I want to confront, you know, my abuser. I want to say, I want them to apologize. I want them to know the impact that they've had on me. And I think it's also important to know that there's ways that you can create that experience for yourself without necessarily directly confronting the other person or bringing it up. So you could write a letter um, to that person that you never send. You write it, you might keep it forever, you might write it and burn it or write it and shred it up and throw it away. Um, but even that, just kind of getting that out um, can be can be really helpful as well. That's something that we have within our own control and our own power to do um, regardless of how other people might respond. Okay. Um, so now we're coming into the next segment, which is the final little bit of the show that we love to call an open mic. Um, just anything that you are passionate to talk about or you want to share with the audience uh, just for the last few minutes or so. So I'll give you the floor and allow you to Share anything that you'd love to share. Sure. Well, I think some um, big takeaways that I would uh, hope that people would have um, pulled from today's conversation um, around violence and abuse in relationships um, is that it's common. It does happen. It's much more common than we think. Um, it can happen to all different kinds of people. There's so many barriers for people to reach out for help and for getting the support that they need. Um, but that if you or someone that you know has experienced or is experiencing 
abuse in a relationship, that it is important to reach out for help and to also just honor your recovery process and know that it is possible and it is um, probable, in fact, to heal and recover um, from past abuse and move forward into a life that may or may not include another healthy, safe relationship that may or may not include, um, you know, a new career path, for example, or moving um, or staying where you are. There's so many different directions that that can take. Um, but the, the last thing that we haven't talked too much about, but that I do want to speak about um, a little bit more, I briefly mentioned that I've also worked on a healthy relationships initiative, and this has been much more upstream and focused on promoting healthy relationships. And I would really, I think maybe that would be where I would end our conversation today from, from my side of things is, you know, it's really important that we're talking about domestic violence and what to do when we've experienced that. And of course, that's so important. And as we talked about throughout the program today, it's, it's way more common. There's so much work to be done. But I think to really be able to sort of move toward ending and addressing violence and abuse at the societal level, we really have to focus on that prevention and building healthy, safe relationships and making that a priority and developing those skills and that knowledge to be able to do so. Um, and so we talk a lot at the Healthy Relationships Initiative about happy, healthy, safe relationships and what does that look like? Um, and so even just things like taking it slowly, you know, taking your time, getting to know somebody so you can really see, are there green flags, yellow flags, red flags? You know, are we seeing any signs that this is a potentially unsafe relationship? Learning to have healthy communication skills, learning to work through conflict in healthy ways, learning to set boundaries with people who don't have those healthy relationship capacities um, and people who have that toxic influence. So I think that, you know, at the same time as we're raising awareness about domestic violence and helping people learn how to recover and heal from that and get the support they need for their safety while they're in that, I also just encourage everyone to spend some time thinking about the health and the and the quality of the relationships in their lives and maybe some small steps that you can take to help promote healthy relationships in your own life, as well as in um, if you're if you work with relationships and families, the community, but even just your friendships and um, just being better equipped um, with those relationship skills to help bring those into the relationships that you're building. I, I love that we end things on a, such a positive note and how to sort of even prevent it to begin with and just sort of the ways that you can communicate better with people around you and develop that relationship that's an even healthier one um, than what we're talking about today. So yeah, I, I really love that we end things such a, on such a good note. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's a difficult topic to talk about domestic violence, but, um, and it, and it's, Sad, it's difficult, it's traumatizing for, for many people to go through that. But even when people have gone, gone through it, there's hope for recovery. There's, there are resources and support systems and, and services to help people. Um, and we can all play a part in helping to build healthy relationships in our communities and in our personal lives. 
Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for joining me on the show today. Absolutely. It's been an honor. I really appreciate the work that you all are doing and I'm and glad to have had this chance to be a part of it. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have, have you had you on the show. Uh, if there is a way that an audience member would like to get in contact with you, is there a way that they can? Um, I would say I'm going to point them back to our See the Triumph website since I've mentioned it. That way it's fresh in people's minds. Um, so C-S-E-E, the Triumph. Dot org, and you can go there. There's a contact form there if you want to reach out personally. Um, but I definitely encourage you to take a look around. Um, you can see some really inspiring uh, messages from survivors of abuse, as well as a lot of resources that we've developed over the years. We just celebrated the 10-year uh, anniversary of the campaign, actually, on January 1st, 2023. We launched it on January 1st, 2013. So um, it's been a little less active in recent years than it was in the earlier years, but we're still um, putting out new content um, and have a lot of the resources that we've just sort of archived on the site. So that'll be a great place for people to uh, reach out. Okay, I'll definitely have that in the link below and congratulations on the 10 year anniversary of, of See the Triumph. I think that's, that's an amazing, that's amazing achievement. And it's amazing that it's able to have helped so many people in so many different situations. Um, Thank you. So I want to thank you guys for listening today and definitely I'll have the links below of any resources that um, Christine has mentioned or anything that she would like to share. It would be down below. Uh, so thank you guys so much for listening. And if you want to follow all our social media, it's down in the description box, either in below if you're listening on YouTube or on the side if you're listening to on Apple or Spotify. And so thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast, produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.